of Holies because basically I'm just dealing with the furniture that's within the Holy of Holies. Um, you can see on your worksheet there that there's a little graphic. Uh, that graphic just shows you uh, basically the tabernacle and uh, kind of in a you know, uh, general sense what that looks like. I can't see it on my thing. I don't know what happened to it. Oh, there it is. That's right there. And so basically what you have here is you have the whole courtyard uh, of the tabernacle, the outer courtyard. Then you have the tabernacle proper. The tabernacle is divided into two different parts. The most inner part is the Holy of Holies. And the second part is the holy place. And uh, the, whole, the, the whole, most holy place or the Holy of Holies is one third of the size of the rest of that tabernacle. And that's, uh, that's a very special place behind that. There's a veil separating the two. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant is actually within that uh, most holy place. And only one time a year, the high priest was able to go behind that veil to present blood on the mercy seat uh, for the sins of the people. And so if they, uh, they, they would actually tie a rope to them and they'd have bells in the bottom of their robe that if... Uh, for some reason they were not worthy, they would fall over dead inside of that most holy place and they would pull them out with a rope because they couldn't go in and get them. And so they had to make sure they were right with God. And so that'd be something, eh? Got to go to church, got to be right with God or you'll die, you know. Uh, that's not the way it is for us, but that's the way it was for them, especially the high priest. That just, just accentuates the holiness of God and just how special that place really was. And, of course, later when Jesus Christ died on the cross and opened that way for us, it just shows you know, how special that is that now we have access into that uh, presence of God uh, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have uh, several furniture. You have the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you would have a mercy seat. That's another piece. And then you would have a veil. And those are the three things I want to talk about tonight. And then the holy place where the priests would daily go in and they would take care of things. They would put the, the bread on the table. They would uh, keep the incense burning. And, of course, the golden lampstand was never supposed to go out. And those three pieces of furniture are within the holy place. And then outside of the tabernacle, uh, those are all gold-covered. The outside is, is bronze or brass. And that's a picture of judgment. And that's why the laver is a picture of self-judgment as, uh, as they entered the tabernacle. They would look at the laver, and uh, that laver was actually made out of the mirrors of the, out of the, out of the women, the Hebrew women's mirrors. And they pounded that together and made a laver, and that just pictures the word of God, how it just simply uh, reflects. If we look at it, it will show you the sin of your heart. And, uh, and then the altar burnt offerings, of course, that's a picture of the death of Christ the cross of Calvary. And if you look at that, this picture maybe doesn't show it as, as greatly, but you can see that there's a cross uh, pictured there within those, taberna- those those pieces of furniture. Now, this one, it's kind of a cheesy uh, graphic. Uh, you don't see it quite as easy, but uh, that is the, the picture that the Lord was trying to show us within this tabernacle and the outer courtyard. And so... Um, so we, we're just going to talk about the Holy of Holies today and those three pieces of furniture, the two pieces of furniture and the veil, and, uh, and hopefully that will help you understand some things. The division itself of that veil uh, just 
relates to us that there's a division between man and God. And that's what it was there for. It was to show you that, you, you know, we don't qualify. <laughs> you know, there is a division. And God is holy, we are not. And that's what that veil really represented as it had its place within that tabernacle. Um, like I said, they, they could only go into, in, into that place once a year, but not without blood. Uh, they had to present the blood. That was a key element uh, to going behind that veil. No blood, they would die. Uh, it had to have blood. And so the tabernacle message as well is, a, is one of Christ in his incarnation. So when we see this tabernacle and how, how just very plain it is, uh, you know, how it's very earthy, it just pictures how that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and took upon himself man's nature to die for our sins. And uh, not only that, but it's also showing us that, that there's, there's more to this. Uh, God w didn't desire simply to live in a tabernacle, but he was giving them truth as they began to grow so they would understand these truths. They didn't understand what Christ would do yet. They didn't understand the, the power of the blood of Christ. The ultimate goal of God was to actually come and live within man. We are, the, we are to be the temple. And that's why the Bible says in the New Testament, know ye not that you or ye are the temple of the living God? And so that is God's ultimate goal, to have believers as his temple. We are the temple. And uh, this, so what we see here in the tabernacle is simply just a show of, of Christ coming in the flesh, but also how that God came and took upon himself the form of man. And so he, he tried to bridge the gap between God and man. And that's what Jesus did when he came, amen, to show us that he wanted to live in us. Uh, so that was a picture that we see here. Um, I'm going to read to you Hebrews chapter 9. Did I say Exodus? We didn't read that yet, did we? Uh, I'll, read, I'll read Exodus 25, 10 first. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it. And thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about, and thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And the two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, and thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them." Um, the staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And so there we have, like I said last week, the progression of the tabernacle is God actually reaching to us from the center out. Uh, he starts with the, the ark and reaches out to mankind. And so that's not the way we go at it. We got to actually come into the court. We, there's a gate that we have to go through. Then we have to go through the burnt offerings. Then we have to go through the laver. And then we go in to the Holy of Holies, and then we can have access into the Holy, Holy of Holies. And so we need to understand that, that God is in his perspective as he's given us his instruction, is him reaching out to us. As we're looking at him, we're going opposite. We're coming from the outside, from those black tents of Kedar. I remember the goat skins were black, and it would be a, a, a very... Um, contrast to the very white linen fence that surrounded that tabernacle. And so for you to come from the black tents of Kedar into this 
white linen fence and then access the presence of God, that, that's your whole purpose. That's what this is all about. This is about us getting close to God. And it's amazing how many things that God put there that we have to consider when we want to be close to God. <laughs> Amen. It's not just, oh, anybody goes, it doesn't really matter. Well, no, why would the Lord go through so much trouble, you know, and giving us all these pictures and so forth. And so uh, it's very important we see this. In the book of Hebrews, we also see uh, uh, the tabernacle mentioned. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. In other words, there's a mystery to these cherubim. We can go to the book of Ezekiel. You can see what cherubim are. You can see the visions that Ezekiel had. Uh, they each had a different face. There was a man, there was an eagle, there was an ox, and then there was a lion, I believe it was, right? And those four faces were on the cherubim, and they, they, they constantly surrounded the throne of God, and they were the protectors. And not only that, I, I believe they, are, they actually transport the throne of God. And we see that when, when in the vision of Ezekiel, how these four cherubims were there in the throne of God, they were, they were actually carrying it and bringing it down to Ezekiel. And so we can see that these cherubim, they're very special, but like it says here, we cannot now speak particularly. <laughs> in other words, there's a lot of questions that we have about these and, you know, some of them you'll just not get answered until you see Jesus. Amen. You can go and meet them and find out what this is all about. But they're the same ones that Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, talked about, where, who were saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And so uh, these cherubim, they were the ones that were closest to God. They were the very protectors of the throne of God. And so that's what it's talking about there. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went also into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he had offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So there was a mystery there, which was a figure for the time then present, in which we were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, becoming an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more then, or how much more, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So there you see that this tabernacle is really a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and him coming to prepare us to be with him. That's what it's all about here, all right? And so, also, um, let's see here. Now, let's go. Number one, the Ark of the Covenant. Let's look at this. Letter A, the Ark's company. Sorry, I'm just trying to get my head around this. The Ark's company, God's presence with his people. 1 Samuel 4, 3 says, And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, and when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. And so what they did is they related the Ark of the Covenant to the very presence of God. And you saw that as well when they actually went into the promised land and they carried the, the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, they actually put their foot into the Jordan and it parted. And then when they stopped in the center there, all the rest of the people went across while they stood there with the Ark upon their shoulders. That's talking about the presence of God. Now we know it's, it's not as simple as just simply having an Ark on your shoulders that represents the presence of God. It had a lot to do with their belief and their heart towards God that made that effective. Because we know that later on in this story here, 1 Samuel chapter 4, the reason why the Philistines had uh, taken advantage of the children of Israel was because they weren't right with God. And they thought by taking the ark, you know, the same as when they crossed the Jordan, that somehow we were going to have the victory. But that didn't, isn't what happened. They went and got the ark out of Shiloh. That's where Eli was. Remember, that's where Hannah prayed uh, uh, for Samuel, for the son. And... Uh, and the sons of Eli went, and they were, they were actually killed in, in the battle there. And the ark was stolen by the Philistines. And God allowed them to have the, Philist, the ark of the covenant in their defiled city. And uh, God was teaching these people a lesson, the people, the people of God. In 1 Samuel 4.22, it says, and this is after Eli passed away by falling backwards. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. And so it was a symbol that the glory of God is off of our people. And that's why God allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be taken. Amen? That's why it was a big deal for David to bring that Ark from, where, from Shiloh to, uh, to Jerusalem for the first time. It was never in Jerusalem until David made it so. David brought it there. All right? Uh, letter B, the Ark is Christ. There is no work of salvation without the person of salvation. Uh, that is the Lord. Uh, Let's see here. John 1.29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it's very important to understand the picture we have here of death, of the blood. That's all the Lord Jesus Christ. Let her see the ark's cubits. The ark's cubits. C-U-B-I-T-S. All right. Half cubit measurements with his ark. Say, why is that? You know, some of them didn't have that. They were, they were always full measurements. Uh, half cubit measurements signifying that Jesus is not yet fully known for who he is. And it says in verse 10, it says, And they shall make an ark of, of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. So we're not all there yet. <laughs> we're, not, we're not two cubits, Amen. And so that's a picture there. And that's 1 Corinthians 13, 9 says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Amen? Yeah. Uh, Ephesians 2, 7 says that in the ages to come, 
he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And so even ourselves, we, we don't have a full picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we have a fuller picture now than they did in the Old Testament. There's no doubt about that. But yet we're still half. Amen. We're still not there. We're still not complete in that knowledge of Christ. But we're supposed to grow in that knowledge. Letter D, the ark's covering. Jesus is man in his perfection, but also completely God inside and out. And you'll see it there in verse 11 of chapter 25. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, that thou may make upon it a crown of gold round about. And so we know it was wood on the inside, but it was made gold on the outside and gold on the inside. And that's picturing how Jesus Christ is divine in every way. Amen. Though he took upon himself the form of man. And so that's a picture of Christ as well. Hebrews 2.14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So why did Jesus come and take upon himself the form of man? So he could die a man's death. So he could take our place. That's what he did it for. Amen? Amazing thing. 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, why didn't it say the God, Christ Jesus? Because what he's trying to teach us there is the fact that it was his uh, incarnation that made it possible for him to take that place between us and God. Amen? So that's why it says the man, Christ Jesus. 1 John 3.5, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. He's pure gold. Amen? Uh, Colossians 2.9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, from John 1.14, a little further down, it says, And the Word, who was that? John 1.1 1, 1 was talking about the Word. That Word was made flesh. The Word made flesh means to become flesh. So this God, this divine person, became flesh for us, to die for us. And, we, and it says, And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2.6, it says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. Amen. And so there you see that combination of God and man. People want to attack his divinity. They want to do that. I'm sorry. He's gold. People want to attack his humanity. You can't do that. He's man. Amen. He is God-man. And the fact of the matter is he'll be that for eternity. He's not changing. He's not going back. He's not uh, letting go of that human aspect of himself. He's holding on to that because he has become our mediator between us and God. Amen. So let her read the ark's crown. This is Christ as king. Uh, we see that in 11b, it says, And thou shalt make it a crown of gold round about it. Uh, the first thing we see in Scripture is we see how he was born a king. In Matthew 2, 2, it says, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? This is the wise men. For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. They knew this was a king because they read the book of Daniel. Amen. They knew it. Uh, number two, they rode into Jerusalem as a king. Zechariah 9, 9. Or he rode into Jerusalem 
Uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Israel. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And so when he came into Jerusalem that day, and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, he was coming in, riding in as a king. Amen. But he went to the cross before the throne. Also, and that brings us to our next point, he was crucified as a king. In John 19, 19, and Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Amen. He didn't get that quite right. It was basically the king of the world. But he at least got the Jews part right. And that's the Jews got mad at that. They said, hey, don't put that up there. He says, nope, I'm leaving it. He's had enough of their, their belly aching. Amen. And so that was his accusation. They always put the accusation above the head of the, of the accused. When they're dying on the cross, it would say thief. It would say murderer. It would say whatever that person did. For Jesus, all they could come up with, king of the Jews. King of the Jews. That was his accusation. So he was crucified as a king. And number four, he will return as king. And we see that in Revelation 19, 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I encourage you to read that whole passage. Amen. Now letter F, the ark's carriers. The ark's carriers. Staves were placed in the rings for carrying it, and they were left there. This shows us that we must lift Christ up and testify of him continually. So Christ was never to become stagnant. That ark was never just to be allowed to sit. You had to leave the staves in the ark. It's interesting because when David, he finally found the ark and he was going to bring it back, it didn't have the staves in there. And they built, they built an ark, a, a cart for it. And I'm going to show you that a little bit later, how that was a very serious problem. But always, also very indicative of what goes on today, how that people try to represent Jesus in a wrong way. There's a book that's called The New Cart. And that, that's showing how Christians today, with rock and roll and different things like that, they're representing Christ with a new cart, not with the proper way of carrying him. And there was a very specific way. And, and we know that somebody died because they didn't do it the right way. And so it was very serious stuff. So here it is. Actually, when David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem, he used a new cart rather than the scriptural way of using the staves. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 1, it says, And David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel. Of course, this is because the ark had been taken by the Philistines. And now they're finally getting it back. And... Uh, they weren't diligent in seeking the Lord as to how this ought to happen. They were just excited, all excited about God. Isn't that how it is today? All excited about God, but they don't want to do it the right way, you know. And then David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, that was in Gibeah and Uzzah and Ohio. Ohio, oh, I don't know how to say that. The sons of Abinadab drave the new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was in Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. Somebody will check that later and say, Pastor, you said it wrong. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on the, all manner of instruments of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels, 
and on cornets and on cymbals. We're just having a good time. We're playing music. We're just loving God. Uh, our motives are right. How could you question that we're doing things the wrong way? Right? Well, that's what happened here. When they came to Nachon's th- threshing floor, Yuza put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuza, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. He was, having a, he was just having a good old revival. Touching the ark. In fact, the Bible says that David was much displeased that God did that. He was displeased that, that somebody just basically just touched the ark after they were treating it with such reverence and bringing it back home and, and we're singing and we're just praising God, you know. First Chronicles 15, it gives us a detail. It says in verse 1, And David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched for it a tent. Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. What did he do? He began reading his Bible. <laughs> for, then, for them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord unto his place, which he had prepared for it. In verse 11 it says, And David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, uh, Eliel, and Aminadab, and said unto them, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because ye did not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. You know, today we don't care about the due order. Today we just care about having a good time and talking about God. But you know what? David, David was very clear that, you know what? There was a breach upon us because we weren't going after the Lord in due order. Amen? Oh, I don't like or- organized religion. I don't like, well, due order. Due order. People just want to make it all loose as a goose. Anything goes. Anything goes. And, you know, the emotions are high. We're all having a great time. The only one that isn't is the Lord. Amen? So it says, So the priests and the Levites sanctify themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel, and the, and the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord, after the pattern. Amen? The pattern that was given in the mount. And they finally went after the pattern, and then they were safe. Then God was honored. Then God was glorified. Then the end result was what they were looking for. Amen? So what a great concept to think about this. Folks, we're living in the world where they're building Jesus a new cart. It's a new cart, and we're falling for it by, by, the, by the droves of people. You know, just because it looks exciting and so forth. Well, they were excited too. They were just playing instruments like it was going out of style. And someone died. It was judgment, you know. So God wasn't having a good time at all, was he? But it's funny how we can all have a good time and God has nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we've got to be careful. We're having a good time with God. God better be in the middle of that thing. And that should be our desire. And the only way that's going to happen is if we stay close to what the Scripture says. We have to follow the Word of God. Amen? You don't follow the Word, you are going to fail. It's going to collapse on you. 
that, that ark is going to shake, and one day you're going to try to steady it, and you're going to pay the price. Terrible thing. Letter G, the ark's contents says, Thou shalt put in the ark of the testimony which I shall give thee. It says in Hebrews 9.4, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant, or laid uh, round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. We know this, that by the time that ark got to the temple of Solomon, all of those things were gone except for one thing, and that is the table uh, of the covenant. It says that in 1 Kings 8.9, there was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So by the time the ark was placed by Solomon in the temple, the rod and the manna was gone, but the law was still there. The law was still there. Uh, so the first one is the golden pot of manna. This is Jesus as God providing for us that which we need. The Lord provided every day what was needed to survive. He always provides for his people. And we need to be reminded of that day after day. He sent manna down from heaven as they were wandering in the wilderness. It was a part of their training. So they would trust God in the promised land. And yet they tried to test God with it and he showed them that doesn't work. You simply have to obey God. Remember on the Sabbath, he says, hey, gather twice, twice as much on the Friday. And don't go gather on the Saturday. And some people didn't do that, and then they wouldn't have any manna on Saturday. Or some people during the week would gather more than they needed for the day. And the Bible says by the morning, it was full of worms and it stank. So the Lord says, just trust me. Just what you need today. Take what you need today. And on Friday, take double and don't go gather on Saturday. Because it's not going to be there. So the things that the Lord was teaching these people... And yet they first had to try their own way, just like we do, you know. So the golden pot of manna. Number two, Aaron's rod that budded. Jesus Christ, this is a picture of Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection, brings life from that which is dead. So this rod, of course, was not a living rod. Uh, all the, remember, it was the time of Korah, where they were challenging the leadership of Aaron and Moses. And they're saying, hey, we're Levites too. I mean, why do you get this special, you know, privilege of leading and so forth? And so he said, okay, everybody bring their golden censers, everybody bring their rods, and we'll let the Lord decide. And the next day they took their rods, and the one that budded was the one that God chose, and it was Aaron's rod. And so from that day forward, they took that rod, and they put it within the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder. It's the Lord who chooses. <laughs> Amen? Uh, the Lord brings life out of that which is dead. You can say, well, I don't think that guy's worth it. Well, you just let glorify the Lord in that because he's going to show you how he can use a nobody to do something. Amen? And so let God choose what he chooses. <laughs> Yet over and over and over, we're seeing people that always try to seek for position. They're looking for something. They're trying to create their own life. I want, I want this. I'm trying to produce the fruit. The Lord says, no, no, no. I will choose you and out of you will come fruit if you will just do what you're asked to do. Amen? And that's a picture of the resurrection, the resurrected life. And that's why those that are in rebellion and rebel against a church or rebel against their family or rebel against whatever, even on the job, uh, are really not showing that truth, the truth of the resurrection. They're, they're showing death. Amen? And of course, we know what happened to Korah. The ground swallowed him up. And those that 
ran that were hiding on the side because there's always those that don't stick their, their neck in the ring. They're just kind of from the side, yeah, go get them, go get them. And they try to hide themselves from, the, from all the heat of the moment. But the Lord knew exactly who they were because as soon as they saw Korah fall into the hole, they said, oh boy, uh, we better go hide. And as they ran away, the Lord threw fire, boom, 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 250 dead. So he knew those that are running away, you're guilty of sin, you know. The Lord knew that. So it wasn't just those that were blatantly verbal. Folks, you got to keep yourself out of that crowd. Don't you sit on the side and enable rebels. You're just as guilty, and the consequence is the same for you. Amen? You see a rebel, you just say, I'm not talking to you. you got nothing to do with my life. Amen? Because you start giving ear to rebellion, you will become a rebel whether it's an aggressive or a passive one. Passive ones get hit by fire. Aggressive ones get swallowed by the earth. Amen? And there's both kinds. I see them all the time. Amen? And so be careful. Stay away from rebellion. Uh, Number three, the tables of the covenant. Jesus Christ, who is the law's fulfillment in righteousness, the first tables of the law were broken by man. The second set of tables of the law were kept in the ark. So I thought about this. Moses came down from the, from the mountain with these tablets that were written by the very finger of God, and he was holding them within his hands. That is the first problem. <laughs> you cannot hold on to the law. Not a one of us. That's why the Lord immediately, when he called him back, says, Moses, come back over here. Let's write, I want you now to write out some new ones, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to immediately put them in the ark. Put them in the ark. That's because you can't handle it. See, before they even got down from the mountain, it was broken. They had already worshipped false gods. They were committing all kinds of wickedness and so forth. That's what happens when, when the law is within man's hands. <laughs> Amen. You'll just break it. You'll break it. Um, let's see here. In John 7, verse 19, this is what Jesus said. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? <laughs> you know? So he nailed them. None of you keep the law. They were, they, these people were holding on to the law. They had their Torah in their hands. The Lord says, no, that doesn't do, any, do you any good. Having your Torah in your hands and scrolls and a book, that doesn't do you any good. It's got to be placed in the ark. It's got to be placed in Christ. Amen? He is the only one that has fulfilled the law perfectly. And Jesus even said it, none of you keepeth the law. Wow. You think one of them would. Nope. He said, none of you do. None of you. Yet they made a big deal of that Torah. They had it under their arm as they're walking down the street. They'd open up in the synagogue. They just thought they were it. Amen. Lord says, put it in the ark. Put it in the ark. And so this represents Christ bearing the law in his heart as the sinless son of God. Only Jesus, like I talked about on Sunday, you look at that Christ example of obedience. He says, I do nothing of myself. As I hear, I judge. And he says, I only seek to do the will of the Father. See, it's one thing for us to say, like, like kids sometimes, oh, yeah, I did it, Dad. Yeah, I did what you said. To you know, you may have did it, but the problem is the reason why you're only doing it half-heartedly and you're never finishing it. I'm not talking about my boys. I'm talking about every, every boy, amen, and girl. And so the reason why it's incomplete 
is because you don't have the ability. Because you're not seeking. Can you imagine that? Imagine if your children, the, the most important thing to them was that they wanted to do what you wanted them to do. Just think about that for a second. <laughs> you know, that your children, the, the burning desire of their heart was simply to find your will and to do it. You know what would happen? They would not do anything else until they knew what you wanted them to do. They wouldn't jump ahead. They wouldn't say, oh, I think this. That's what Jesus says. I do nothing of myself. So we talk about obedience. You know, these people that think they're going to heaven by being obedient, I'll tell you something, they have never considered Christ's obedience because that's the obedience that you have to achieve. And not just for one day or five minutes. Not even just one minute. You probably wouldn't be able to do it, you know. But he did it his whole life. That's the picture of the law within the ark. That's why you have verses like Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And the reason why he said with the Jews, none of you keep it, is because the law had never found its way in their heart. But you know the final, the new covenant, when Jesus Christ comes again, the Bible says, a new covenant I make with you. I will place my law in your heart. And then you, what you're going to have, you're going to have a whole bunch of obedient Israelites for a thousand years. They're just going to walk around obeying Christ. All they want to do is just what Jesus wants me to do. They won't do anything else. Can you imagine that? That is wonderful. You know, when you go to heaven one day and you're out of this wicked world and you're done with this garbage mind of yours, you're going to want to do what Jesus wants you to do only. You will never question that. You'll never go on your own. You'll never just say, I just want to do this. Oh, I don't know. I'm not going to ask. I, it's better off asking for uh, forgiveness than permission, right? That's everybody's little saying. To actually, that's what submission is. True submission is desiring the will of your father. That's not very common, is it? And then you got people saying, well, you've got to try hard to go to heaven. <laughs> My goodness, man. <laughs> you've never really understood what the Bible said about that, have you? Because if you think you've got to be obedient to go to heaven, then you better follow exactly what Jesus did, and it's impossible for you in your sinful state. That's why righteousness had to be imputed, not produced. Amen? He said, the only way I can do this is to give you my righteousness and then give you your whole lifetime to work out a little bit of that righteousness through you as you learn how to obey me. And at the end of that life, then you're going to see me as I am, and then you're going to know exactly what I'm like. Then I'm gonna, you're going to be exactly as I am. But until then, how can anybody think they're obedient enough to go to heaven? <laughs> you know, it's got to be a gift. It's got to be. It's got to be righteousness given from heaven. Amen? Great truth, anyways. Um, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill Oh, we're just hoping, Lord, just get rid of that law, man. It's just so hard on us. You know, I'm not here to get rid of it. I'm here to show you the fulfillment of it. You say, what? 
because that's far away from where we are. Amen, <laughs> far away. Um, let's see what else I have here. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell in safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Amen. You know, I'm going to stop right there. Next week, we'll do number two and three. All right. We'll let you off early today. How's that? Feel like going home? <laughs> Let's bow our heads. Because if I start this point, I'm sorry. We're going to be here for another 20 minutes. <laughs> Let's bow our heads. What a great point to leave on, though. Think about this. Now that you're born again, Christ is in you. You have that potential to have his righteousness flow through you. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. You're, you're going to mess up because you're going to think about yourself too much. It's going to be about you, and it shouldn't be about you. But this is where you've got to be around the Word of God. You've got to become the church. You've got to hear the preaching. You've got to be constantly reminded how bad you really are so that you can have Christ's righteousness flow through your life. I had a fellow talk to me just recently, and he was saying how the devil was condemning him. I says, well, you're condemnable <laughs> in yourself. But the fact of the matter is the only reason you're not condemned is because of Christ. Each one of us would be condemned. Therefore, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So if somebody accuses you, you can say, well, I'm worthy of it. But the fact of the matter is I'm not condemned because of Christ. And for that, I'm grateful.